0: And you're listening.
1: And you're listening. You're
0: listening to Salmon. Salmon. Salmon.
2: Salmon. To Salmon Fest. Radio. And you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio. We're your hosts, Satchel Pondolfino.
0: And Dave Applin.
2: We're recording today on the shores of Kachamak Bay, the traditional and unceded lands of the Denaina and Supiak people. And we're going to give you another hour of fish, fun, and music. This episode, we're digging into one of my favorite bands, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. They are an awesome bluegrass band from Wisconsin. One of
0: the things I love about this band is that they're from my home state. I don't know if you could tell, but I'm a cheeselander uh, by extraction. And in fact, I went to uh, a university in, the, in Wisconsin where many of these guys are from, and there's that strong land ethic in the state. And if you think of the conservation leaders, people like John Muir and Aldo Leopold and Gaylord Nelson and others, there's a real strong tradition for a land ethic there. And these guys reflect that in many ways, and it was just such a pleasure to have them with us to share that love of the outdoors that they have and that concern about the future of the planet. They're just terrific, and I hope we see them back here soon.
2: And if you can remember that far back, Horseshoes and Hand Grenades was actually the last band to send us off Salmon Fest 2019 on the main stage. And we got to sit down with the banjo player, Russell, the bassist, Sam, and the guitarist and lead singer, Adam.
0: Hey, Satchel, how about we kick things off with some music? Here's Horseshoes and Hand Grenades and a song that Adam wrote inspired by a trip uh, in a train and then on a dog sled across the glacier, a truly iconic Alaskan experience.
1: goodbye. Passing Girdwood come the morning light. Those glaciers lit up like we were last night. Went to Salmon Fest and I lost my mind. Picking up steep so damn fake. Good Inspired it right here.
0: Let's go backstage at Salmon Fest 2019 for an interview with Horseshoes and Hand Grenades. Do you
3: all
4: like, to fish at all? Yeah. Yep. A whole lot. I...
3: No.
4: Yeah, so uh, that's, uh, you know, as some of the guys in the band, myself included, certainly Russell, fishing's, like, you know, our favorite thing uh, along with playing music. And so that's one of the riveting experiences of coming up to Alaska is obviously the awesome salmon fishing and we're gonna try to get out on the Kenai uh this week and last year I was lucky enough to do the halibut thing uh and that was a lot of fun and uh but yeah it's that's that's a big joy for us mostly fly fishing uh
3: any other thoughts on fishing
4: um I don't know fishing up here is
5: how a lot of some of my good friends make a living working as guides up here during a few months out of the year. So kind of directly affects a lot of my good friends, the ability to work in the guiding industry in Alaska Mm -hmm. as, as fishermen, not just
4: recreationally, but as an occupation. And being, being from Wisconsin, a lot of our friends, uh, and family come up to Alaska, uh, for, for the salmon fishing and, and for, you know, the, the, general environmental quality that you guys have have up here and uh you know it's we we get to see that firsthand coming from uh wisconsin how important that is you know pro- i'm sure it's probably got a massive impact on your tourism industry that's
3: awesome and you all have played at salmon fest before right mm-hmm. yeah yes. so what do you think is different about salmon fest than other festivals you've played at
6: it's a festival with a purpose, you know, like everyone's out here for the mission of helping out our fellow salmon, our fellow inhabitants of the planet, and trying to not only do something good for everyone who comes, but do something good for an entire landscape that supports a enti- like incredibly complex life form mm-hmm. that is in itself really representative of how the rest of us are doing.
4: It's if, it's almost like the frog, you know, it's an indicator species too, right? So if your salmon if you yeah. if your salmon are doing well, it's an indicator of how like the greater ecosystem is doing in the same way that frogs are. Yeah. yeah. Like in high high country lakes, that's that's one way that they test test that, but yeah, you know, I I agree with Sam that like do, you know, having a festival for a cause is super important and it gives us uh you know, it, it provides a little bit more of a value kind of for us as performers. It gets you a little bit more excited. You know, we've got a similar, similar situations going on in Wisconsin, uh, with, uh, metallic sulfide mining in Northern Wisconsin and how that impacts like wild rice and how that impacts the, the trout and other fish populations in, in, uh, Northern Wisconsin and, There, you know, it has a, and and I think this is probably the case in Alaska too, um, it has a larger effect on some Native American communities uh, in Northern Wisconsin, which, uh, you know, that, that can be an underrepresented group in our state. And, you know, I can't speak specifically to Alaska aside from some things that I've heard, but I think Salmon Fest is is a, a great example of creating awareness around a certain issue through something that people love a whole lot, that being music. It's a, it's a great community, uh, you know, it brings people together.
3: So do you all ever see an opportunity to bring activism into your music and your shows?
5: Um, yeah, we try to, I, I would even say, that subtly in a majority of the songwriting that you would hear from a lot of our original music alone is there's undertones of what all of us really want to say in our own kind of fancy way in our writing and then um we've been doing a little bit of uh adam has been really really good in in our like hope that clean water is available for everyone and has been doing a lot of great speaking out in our live shows to really call people to think twice about, you know, what they're doing on the landscape as a way to make sure that clean water is still available for everyone, everywhere. It's one of those things that we can talk about when we're playing in Alaska or California or Wisconsin or on the East Coast, kind of.
4: And it crosses all these boundaries. It crosses political boundaries. Like, you know, if you you don't want clean water or clean air, you're probably an (laughs) (laughs) ass.
3: Yeah. (laughs) Probably. <laughs> Definitely, <laughs> Definitely maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, so you all get to see like a lot of this country through touring, I imagine. And um, you know, it's twenty nineteen, we're seeing some pretty big impacts with climate change. Are there um, any like experiences or stories that you have from your tours of seeing these these impacts?
4: By us, I mean we've got the Great Lakes I mean predicament going the
5: last, on. The last the last Couple years in the river drainages where I've lived, we've suffered the 10 highest water, like high water events on record, like that have ever existed. That's right. I've watched numerous, like the towns that I've lived in, have, I've been like, I've been waterbound. Absolutely. Absolute like, devastation. Yeah, absolute des- devastation. You can't drive anywhere. Towns are completely
4: ripped apart. And the storms like, that just cut through them, the most, yeah, the worst storms in central winds. Wisconsin history happen. Yeah. Not even mm-hmm. microbursts. Macro bursts happened in central Wisconsin in the last month. That those are like uncharted in Wisconsin history. Yeah, we're hitting and people are like, like, are you kidding me? I mean, obviously something is going on here. Yeah, you farm, I mean, Sam? Yeah, what have you seen as, this as year? As a farmer, I mean,
6: <laughs> what? This was the warmest July ever recorded in human history, and the previous warmest Julys ever recorded were in the last five years. Uh, the international uh, panel of climate climate scientists are all saying that this is 100% caused by human activity. That's the main driver, and I mean, yeah, this last year, I think 80% of the corn was planted. You know, not that I'm a big corn farmer guy, but in solidarity with other farmers, like that's devastating, especially for farmers who live on this. Credit debt cycle that they need that harvest otherwise they're they're gone they're not paying back the bank they're not paying back the suppliers and the uh, their equipment debts and whatnot um, and yeah I mean as far as like my farmer colleagues like I'm watching people's mental st- stability just absolutely decline as a result of not being able to get in their fields and it's it's super sad to see like the level of depression that is caused. In those rural communities and in our farmer communities, these are the people that feed us, and they're not sure how to feed us in the in, for the future. They they don't necessarily have the same natural rhythm that they can depend on, and yeah, they're they're stuck trying to figure out what it's going to look like for next year's planting, and it just shifts everything so much.
4: I talked to a couple big like, I've got some friends in Central Wisconsin. They're like, you know. Broadly described as like big egg farmers, who like I grew up with them in high school. I always respected them. Never really agreed politically. And I've talked to him recently about climate change, and their entire political perspective has shifted because they and 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 this is such a great indicator too. I mean, you talk about frogs. You you know, you're talking about salmon, but also people who are directly intertwined with the environment, like farmers, can also say this. And, I mean, I have buddies who are, like, the most hardcore, uh, one-way-looking, politically, you know, folks that are now completely shifted in a different direction because its you can't ignore this anymore. You can't ignore climate change. It's complete and utter...
3: So in all this chaos that we're seeing in this world, what brings you all hope? I think it's
6: I think in a lot of ways it's festivals and things like this where you see that sense of community and the ability and yearning for people to leave their like atomized existences behind where they're just at home. Everybody's got their own car, their own garage, their own washer-dryer. And then we come together and we're able to share so much. And just like being able to take that risk and trusting each other. And bank on the fact that it's all gonna be alright and like even random strangers are gonna get you through a weekend at all these festivals that we go to, I think reinvigorates the the like solidarity sense that we need to really tackle these issues and and being able to trust a stranger and really be like, all right, maybe I don't need my own and I don't just have to look after my own because if we all got this together, we can then begin to tackle these I mean what
4: are the issues of our time that's like perfectly put yeah I think that
5: that's so beautiful I don't know I've been trying to take my time out while out on the water back home to just like talk to the other people that are out there like utilizing the resources and recreating and just be like hey this high water sucks like you know and just like try to make small talk with them try to figure out where they kind of lie on that and like leave just a little bit of hey you know, we could do stuff differently kind of vibe just to try to create that same kind of community but out in the resource, sort of. That's I think nice. it kind of makes everybody feel better or at least sparks an interest in thinking twice about what you do the rest of the time if you want to keep doing cool stuff.
3: Yeah, that's great.
5: Think twice, it's not
7: all right. <laughs>
3: <laughs> yeah, um, Pat, is there anything else you all want to say before we wrap up?
4: Um, thank you to everybody in Alaska who's, you know, working for these issues. I know it's, and I can relate in a lot of ways that sometimes it feels like such an uphill battle uh, down in Wisconsin, certainly up here in Alaska, but man, your work matters. And, uh, don't, don't you forget that and, uh, keep fighting the good fight. So they say, and, uh, you know, if you're listening to this and this is challenging your perspective, don't be scared by that, uh, and vice versa. Maybe just just try to go across the aisle and see a different perspective, and and uh, see see where your uh, where your middle ground is as a person.
6: Yeah, and, and in that in that uh, sentiment, I'd say like what we're doing right here, you know, celebrating the small wins. You know, Amy Goodman or Amy Goldman said. Emma Goldman, oh, I love Amy Goodman, but Emma Goldman, you know, she said something along the lines of if your revolution doesn't have dancing, I don't want to be a part of it. And that's what we're doing right here is, you know, dancing to these small wins and showing folks who might be skeptical that this is actually not only the right thing to do, but this is the fun thing to do. This is where life actually exists, where we make life happen and where we're not just passively going through the motions and we're coming together with other people. It's, yeah, this is what is beautiful about revolution.
0: Wow.
2: Yeah, that's Sam. He's the bass player. I love that he ended the interview in that way. One of my movement mentors is Adrienne Marie Brown, and she wrote a book called Pleasure Activism, and it's about how in order for our movements to be long-lasting and effective, they have to be irresistible. So meaning that... They have to be filled with what brings us joy, like dancing and art. And I think you're seeing more and more of that across all movements right now. But it's, I think that's what Salmon Fest aims to do. And um, that's why it's one of my favorite weekends of the summer.
4: We come from the great state of Wisconsin, guys. And, uh... We're definitely thankful for that. We've got a, a lot of beautiful country in Wisconsin that uh, we appreciate in a big way. And uh, we also feel pretty damn lucky when we get to come up to Alaska here and experience all the fine water and the fine spaces, the fine looks, and the fine people uh, in the, the greater Kenai area. Sometimes we get up to Denali and, and, and Telkeetna, too. but. Uh, Man, we're just really damn grateful to get to hang out with you guys this weekend. It's uh, the land of the midnight sun has been good to us. And uh,
1: keep on being lovers. Come on in, my good friend. It's so damn good to see you again. It's been too long since we've seen your face. Seen your face. Life takes its twists turns some old bridges have since burned the ones they build right make it through the end beers bongs and blood is my good friends are at salmon fest Sunday Salmon Fest. All the love. Keep on being freaking beautiful.
0: Why don't we migrate over to our Salmon Champion?
2: Our Salmon Champion this episode is Dr. Tom Quinn. He got his master's and Ph.D. from the University of Washington and has been teaching for 35 years now. Dave, you got an opportunity to sit down with Tom. What did you guys talk about?
0: What didn't we talk about? But one of the things I wanted to focus on just for my own edification, was a better understanding of the salmon life cycle. Especially, I was thinking this time of year, what's going on under the ice? What's going on in those streams and lakes? And we talked about the salmon life cycle, salmon ecology, and that entire system of Bristol Bay, especially around our largest lake, Lake Ileana. And so here's Tom.
1: Salmon fever!
8: so I'm a city kid where the salmon were with cream cheese on bagels and the bears were safely in the zoo. I I grew up right in the middle of Manhattan, um, a couple of blocks from where the, the diner in Seinfeld was filmed. My parents were both professors of English literature. Reading and learning were very important in our household. And they took my brother and me to the Museum of Natural History the aquarium, the zoo, uh, as well as the art museums and so forth. And my brother and I were always just most interested in natural history. I came out to the West Coast in 1976 to go to graduate school at the University of Washington, fell in love with the area and with salmon. Starting in 1987, I had the opportunity to start going to Bristol Bay, specifically Iliam the Lake, and that's been part of my summer and actually for, for my family as well annually since uh, 87. I'm basically a salmon and trout guy and have had a wonderful career studying those fishes and the places where they live. I came out to graduate school and I wanted to study how salmon find their way around. I've always been interested in migration and navigation. And I had the kind of harebrained idea that salmon might use Uh, the magnetic field of our planet Earth as a source of guidance information and most people thought I was nuts, but I had an advisor that was willing to let me try it and the experiments in fact showed that salmon showed evidence of orienting to our planet's magnetic field and then I gradually decided I didn't really want to study the sensory systems as much as the ecology and conservation. I've had studies in saltwater and freshwater juveniles and adults. And it's been it's been wonderful. If you follow salmon and trout around, you tend to go to some beautiful, interesting places. And I've met some fascinating people. So it's all been
0: good. Satchel, the connection between the University of Washington and Bristol Bay goes back to the 40s when scientists like W.F. Thompson from the university came to Alaska to begin to understand, from a scientific perspective, that incredibly complex system that provided so many salmon to the world.
2: So those leading fishery scientists really laid the groundwork for Tom's research today.
0: Exactly.
8: They established field camps first in the Wood River system, and then later in the Iliamna and also over at Chignik. Pioneer and graduate students went there, And, of course, they initially stayed in tents, but they built cabins and they established incredible long-term data sets. These people developed a lot of the techniques that are now standard and they had to think about what factors in our environment might be controlling the abundance of sockeye. And they thought about physical factors, so water temperature, date of ice out, river flow, solar radiation, and they started recording those. And for biological factors, they thought about predators. They kept track of how many juvenile salmon there were, how many sticklebacks, uh, the food that they ate. And so they started sampling the plankton in the lakes. And I asked one of the guys later in his life what it was like. And he said, you know, the first few years, everything was exciting, the earliest, the latest, the biggest, the smallest, everything was new. And after about 20 years, it felt like just putting dots on a graph, you know, same old, same old. And that's the point when lesser scientists would have said, you know, we've found the bottom of the well, there's nothing more to discover, let's pack up and go somewhere else. If they had stopped after about 20, 25 years, they would have missed the whole story. Because in the late 1970s, started to see an acceleration of climate change, changing ocean conditions related to both human-related greenhouse gases, but also oceanographic and atmospheric conditions, The late 70s saw a huge boom in salmon production in Alaska, and if they'd stopped sampling before that, they would have missed the whole story. So faculty members like myself, Daniel Schindler, Ray Hilborn, the three of us are the main ones at present, really have been working on the shoulders of these giants that established the program. Conditions were really, really challenging, and they established the data sets, built the field camps, And we have been continuing many of those data sets. And so the best long-term ecosystem study of salmon anywhere in the world, and that includes Russia and Japan and Norway, is right there in Bristol Bay. And at some point, of course, Alaska Department of Fish and Game came along after statehood. And so some of the responsibility has been taken over by ADF&G, but we partner with them. And the partnership with them has only enhanced the, the quality of the whole program
2: it's clear that Tom is a really thorough scientist. And I know that his research covers all sorts of ecosystem functions and species in Bristol Bay. But truly when we think of Bristol Bay, sockeye salmon really steal the show and they're just the iconic species in Bristol Bay. Why, why is that?
0: Well, here's what he has to say about that.
8: So sockeye
2: salmon of all
8: the species is the most inclined to feed in lakes during their one or two years of life in freshwater prior to going to sea. Now coho salmon will, and the other species as well, but the predominant habitat for juvenile sockeye salmon is the lake. They're adapted to feed on zooplankton, unlike things like coho salmon that are of a deeper body, different color pattern, and are adapted to feed on insects and streams. And so there are populations of sockeye that are not associated with lakes. I am aware of those, but for the most part, large sockeye salmon populations are associated with large lakes. And Iliamna Lake being a large lake fits the bill. The second reason is that the nature of the spawning habitat for sockeye associated with Iliamna Lake is exceptionally diverse. Some of the rivers are glacial, some of them are not. You've got a wide range of physical habitat and almost every year seems to be good for some of them even though it might not be good for all of them. And those diverse physical habitats for breeding linked to a large lake seems to be perfect for sockeye salmon. So you, you can think about this like a like tile on a mosaic, right? The farther back you step, the clearer the picture gets. So if you look at any one tributary of any one lake, you won't see a long-term trend. It gets a little bit clearer at the level of the lake, let's say Lake Aleknikik. The trends get clearer still if you look at the scale of the Wood River system, and then the Nushegek District, and then Bristol Bay as a whole. So each one of these things is going up and down, out of phase with each other. The big lesson is that we have to armor our management, including both the fisheries management and also the processing and the economies of the region to ride the downs as well as the ups, because expecting the populations to be steady is not reasonable.
2: So another metaphor I've heard Tom's colleague Dan Schindler use when we're talking about the diversity of a habitat and why it's so important to prioritize protecting it is you can think about it kind of like why people really emphasize the importance of investing in a diverse portfolio. With your finances.
0: And a diverse portfolio of stocks helps insulate you against the booms and busts of the market. And Dan Schindler talks about that really eloquently, how preserving these different habitats, these different rivers and lakes and stream systems allows flexibility within the entire system. And when I heard Tom Quinn talking about that, that reminded me of of sort of elasticity, that that diversity in places and conditions and genetics of the fish has allowed Bristol Bay to thrive for thousands and thousands of years in all kinds of different conditions.
8: You know, Dave, as you were starting to speak, I was gonna use the word elastic and you beat me to it. That's exactly right. Elastic is a very, very good metaphor. Of course, you can stretch it to the point where it's broken, right? You can break the rubber band, But as long as the habitat is in good shape, the populations should perpetuate. And the key is to maintain high quality habitat and a diversity of habitat. You don't wanna take the one river that's producing the most fish now and only protect that because the ones that are low now may become the big producers later. And it's the, the quote from Aldo Leopold, the first rule of wise tinkering is to keep all the pieces. Well, you can almost think about an ecosystem as a whole lot of pieces and you don't want to throw them away and you might not know what that little widget does. So some stream might not be producing very many salmon now. And yet if you built a dam there or degraded it in some way that was not being able to be fixed, then in the future, you will never know how much more that would have contributed.
0: It's actually the thing that blows me away is how integrated the life cycle of the salmon are. The specifics of how the eggs end up where they do and how long they're sitting in the gravel and then that movement to the ponds and then that smoltification where they transform into a saltwater being and down the river and all of that. It's so connected to that place, to the habitats within the space, to the abundance of fresh water and to the different forces that have been modifying that over time people and bears and belugas and eagles and all of that
2: i want to learn more about that life cycle
0: yeah funny you should ask
8: well let's think in terms of a little baby sockeye salmon in the spring of the year and this would be just a little bit over an inch long we'll be wriggling up out of the gravel in a stream and swimming down to the lake itself, or if the parents spawned in the lake, that little fry will wriggle up into the lake itself and will look to feed. Now, if the lake is completely covered with ice, obviously it will be quite dark, it will be cold, and there will be very little to eat because the food of the juvenile sockeye, these little tiny crustaceans, these little zooplankton, they can only become abundant in the lake when there is something for them to eat and those are the phytoplankton, the single-celled algae. So the earlier the ice leaves the lake, which is controlled by temperature, the light floods in, of course you're seeing the increasing day length in the spring, and the nutrients in the lake and the presence of light will fuel the phytoplankton, the little single-celled algae, that are then fed upon by these little they kind of look like little shrimpy things. I mean, they're not shrimp, but they're little crustaceans in the lake. And those are the prey for the juvenile sockeye salmon. So from year to year, the date of out will vary, of course. And you have your warmer and colder springs, but the sockeye fry are typically entering the lake June and starting to feed. They'll feed as fast as they can during that relatively short summer season. The lake doesn't get very warm, but it gets a bit a bit warmer and every day they will be resting in the deep waters of the lake and right about twilight they will move up in the water column to feed near the surface. Now they could, they could feed near the surface all day long but they would be preyed upon by rainbow trout and arctic char in the lake. So up and down, up and down, up and down, up and down every day for one year or two and if the lake is relatively warm and there's not too much competition The juvenile sockeye will be big enough after one year to migrate out to the lake. When the water is colder and the density is higher and there's more competition and they are growing slower, a larger fraction of that cohort will spend two whole years in the lake. They will be going out to sea. The older, larger smolts tend to leave earlier in the spring than the smaller ones. This lake might have a couple of hundred million smolts. So we would have billions of fry entering the lake Hundred million smolts or so leaving the lake, and the great majority of them would spend two or three years out at sea coming bombing back, dodging through the fisheries in the Naknacquijak district to make their way back to the lake, entering in late June and July, and the spawning typically commences in August. Most of the spawning in Ileanda Lake is in August and September, after which the adults are dead and the offspring or fertilized eggs are incubating in the gravel so they might be spawned in August and not emerge as fry till the following June. So they might spend most of their first year of life as embryos below the surface of the gravel. It's a strange and complicated life cycle but a couple hundred million sockeye seem to be getting it right so it seems to work for them.
0: I told Tom that I thought my odds as an individual salmon egg didn't feel very strong should I find myself in that position. But he pointed out that overall the system works pretty well.
8: Oh, they're not, but that's why your mother had 4,000 eggs. Your mom was planning on it in an evolutionary sense, and the number of eggs that the salmon produce has evolved to match the levels of natural mortality I mean, remember, every salmon that's caught in the fishery is a virgin, right? Every one of them. I mean, for most fish and game management, the rules are all designed to allow the animals to breed at least once before we start hunting them, whether it's, you only take male crabs or you don't shoot does in season. All these regulations are designed to allow the animals to breed. All the sockeye, all the salmon we catch are virgins. And yet we can still, on a sustainable basis, catch on the order of half of them. It shows how remarkably productive they are. They do really well. Think about how much fishing they can sustainably take and the population, just like a biological perpetual motion machine.
2: Dave, this is my favorite part of the interview There, I got so excited when I learned this. It was the first time on my consciousness that I had realized that every other species, we have to harvest after they've replaced themselves in their population base, after they've reproduced. But with salmon... We've been in that relationship with them for so long that they have evolved to reproduce at such abundance. It's okay that we harvest them as virgins because, like, they're accounting for our taking of them. So it is like they expect this human relationship. Clearly, they know. They know about our—about <laughs> how tasty they are in our bellies. But no, I mean, like, they, they expect this, and they're giving—it's an offering. It's a beautiful offering. There's no other species that can that can sustain their relationship with us without this sort of like intensive management from humans. I mean, we manage salmon intensively, but it's a different type of management. We can build our entire economy around this, our entire culture is built around this relationship because salmon reproduce in such abundance. With salmon, it's different. With salmon, our interaction with them is part of their is like intimately part of their reproductive evolution so that they can stay not only humans, but bears and the soils and the trees so that they can sustain all these other functions of the ecosystem around them. They're truly remarkable. And I don't know why it took Tom Quinn with his scientific lingo to like hit me in the like salmon spiritual center But it really did. Like I just like this part of the interview just really opened my mind up to our relationship with salmon in a way that I hadn't really thought about before.
0: Satchel, that's great. You had an epiphany and it reminds us that people have been in that relationship with salmon in Bristol Bay for eons. So we asked Tom, all right, you got a system that's working well, generating surplus, What are the things that might endanger the sustainability of the place? And not surprisingly, the first thing that came to his mind was the Pebble Mine.
2: Which our listeners probably know just hit a pretty major roadblock when the Army Corps of Engineers denied a major permit for the proposed copper and gold mine.
0: Right. And there's thousands of people within the region and around the world now looking toward more permanent protections for the place but let's hear what Tom has to say about the threats that Pebble brings.
8: Things like that are never gone off the table. They're held at bay. It's not as though the knowledge of where that deposit is is gonna be forgotten. And so the prospect of some sustained protection for that area would be very, very desirable. And I realize it's a controversial issue in Alaska involving different perspectives. And, you know, I live in a house, I drive a car and I realize that when we use these natural resources there is a responsibility to participate in the processes by which they're obtained. But I think that there are certain places where the risks are too great and this is one of them. If this isn't worth saving, what would be? And if a mine as large as was contemplated wouldn't constitute a threat, what would be? And so to me, if you don't draw a line in the sand here, you're really saying that there's no line to be drawn anywhere. And I would like to think that for the benefit of the economies and the indigenous people and the ecosystem, that this is special and merits the kind of protection that would keep it functioning like a smoothly running engine into the future.
0: Over our previous episodes, we've received the perspective on salmon from Lydia Olympic, a Yupik woman from Bristol Bay, from Sue Mauger, a freshwater ecologist at Cook Inlet Keeper. We've heard from Rachel James, who's working to keep a coalition together that will protect that intact system. And today we brought in uh, Tom Quinn. And Tom has a remarkable perspective after 35 years of direct experience and the scientific process to try and understand the system in another way. And that's one of the things I hope we're able to achieve over time with this show is different looks into that window to understand salmon more completely.
2: Totally. Yeah.
0: You know, all of our guests so far have recognized the true wealth that's within our natural world and in this case Bristol Bay specifically. And and Tom seems ready to hand that wealth forward to the next generation.
8: Well, you know, it is beautiful. It's been a privilege, but it's not uniquely mine. It was transferred to me by others, and so it's my responsibility to transfer it again to someone else. And I feel that responsibility very strongly. It doesn't belong to me. You know, the land on Porcupine Island belongs to the Petro Bay Corporation. the UW owns the property in Iliamna Village, but I think of all of it as being held in trust for the local people. And so the responsibility is to do the best job we can and then transfer it to the next generation of scientists as it was transferred from the previous one to us.
0: And a hearty Salmon Fest Radio. Thank you to Dr. Tom Quinn for spending so much time with us listeners know that that interview went on for quite a while and it's fodder for future conversations but i'll tell you what i i learned so much from tom he was so generous with his time and uh, his commitment to the place rings true
2: so thank you tom we appreciate you well you're listening to salmon fest radio And now we're going to take you back to the soundscape of Salmon Fest and get into our Jammin' for Salmon segment where we play music recorded live on the stages of Salmon Fest
1: 2019.
0: Focus on your breath and feel the surroundings. Feel the surroundings. Focus on your breath and feel the surroundings.
1: Like your mind will wander like a duck,
7: stand will your mind, wander like, like a duck. Imagination, drain attention to the heartbeat. Attention to the heartbeat. Imagination, drain attention to the heartbeat. Attention to the heartbeat.
1: Your mind will wander like it does, and will. Your mind will wander like it does. Your mind will wander like it does, and will. Your mind want wander like it does.
0: I forgot my mantra. I forgot my mantra. Focus on your breath, feel your surroundings. What
1: happened? Oh, feel your surroundings. Imagine this train, tends to the heartbeat. Oh, to the heartbeat. Doo-doo-doo-doo, Imagination drain attention to the heartbeat Oh my
7: attention to the heartbeat
1: Your mind will wander like a dash and it did. my mind will wander
7: like a dash My mind it wander like a dark My mind it wander like a dark
0: That was our pal Keller Williams. We're going to wrap things up with the infamous Bratfish Wrangler.
1: The gold there in the mountains worth it's the, the, silver, the silver, silver of the, the sea. sea The silver the of the salmon, salmon Lord, and all they bring to me Don't mess with the food chain, don't you mess, mess with Mother Earth, with Earth. With Billions of our people learn now. now what's their hunger worth Tell me what's their hunger worth, worth? change
2: up another salmon fest radio episode we want to thank everybody who made it possible thank you to horseshoes and hand grenades and my friend their interviewer ali Rosenbluth,
0: and tom quinn for being our salmon champion
2: and salmon fest themselves for throwing such a great festival
0: and our friends over at kbbi for technical support and this fancy equipment
2: and to our very own producer kira hardy
0: and of course uh, our host cook inlet keeper
2: And Pastor Tim and Brian Belay for recording the live music from Salmon Fest 2019.
0: And to all of you for sticking with us here on Salmon Fest Radio.
2: And in the meantime, spawn on!
4: This is Horseshoes and Hand Grenades, and you're listening to Salmon Fest Radio.